Welcome to Feminist Question Time, brought to you by Women's Declaration International, the leading global organisation defending women's sex-based rights against the threats posed by gender identity ideology. There's more information on our website, womensdeclaration.com, where you will find our Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights, which has been signed by 35,815 people from 160 countries and is supported by 509 organisations. We have over 100 volunteer activists, including many country contacts, engaged in defending women's rights. And so do join us as a volunteer if you have not already. Today, we have Carol Hunter from Wicklow Women for Women, Ireland. She's going to give an update on Ireland. Barbara Bull from Japan, an update on Japan, a weakened LGBT bill presented to the Diet before the G7 summit. So I'm really pleased now to go to our first panellist. That's Carol Hunter from Wicklow Women for Women from Ireland. She's going to give a, a talk and her bio says <laughs> that she is part of Wicklow Women for Women, one of the biggest groups defending women's sex-based rights, presumably in Ireland, but maybe soon the world. <laughs> but over to you, Carol. Um, it's a pleasure having you on. Mm. All right, thank you. It's really rather hopeful about us being even the biggest in Ireland, which we are by no means are, but uh, still working hard. So um, you probably all know that Ireland is touted as the poster child for gender recognition and self-identification. Countries point to us as somewhere self-ID has been in place for several years with no downside, no adverse consequences. The truth is that we are in fact the poster child for the Denton's Report playbook. And we are now a sort of Petri dish for other countries to see how thoroughly gender ideology can be embedded in legal systems and be positioned as normal without any objections. First, a bit of background, because I, I find that people aren't terribly sure about Ireland, apart from St. Patrick and Leprechauns. Uh, we are a country of 5.1 million people with a median age of 38.2 years, so a fairly young population. Due to inward immigration, our population has grown 10% in 10 years, which is another thing that causes a bit of um, societal change. Um, so that, that's relevant to all of this, I think. We've been a member of the EU since 1973 and always strive to be the good child in implementing EU legislation. Our government is basically centre-right, and because of our system of proportional representation, we normally end up with a coalition government. At the moment, we have a coalition of our two main centrist parties and the Greens, and the presence of the Greens is very important. For most of our history, we have been a deeply Catholic country, but in the last 20 years, the various church scandals have meant that most people now consider themselves only nominally Catholic. This has left an ethical vacuum, which gender ideology has been quick to colonize, aided by Irish people's desire to be seen as forward thinking and on message. Of course, the Denton Report advised that legislation be quietly latched onto more popular legal reforms. And in 2015, we had the ideal situation with the referendum on marriage equality, which had enormous public support. Under the radar, the Gender Recognition Act was passed at the same time in the Doyle, our parliament, with no public discussion and no public awareness. Denton's itself states that in Ireland, activists have directly lobbied individual politicians and tried to keep press coverage to a minimum. They've succeeded in that. 
These activists, primarily the Transgender Equality Network Ireland, TENI, had been working for some years prior to 2015 and by 2015 basically owned the narrative. So overall, the Denton strategy has been hugely successful here. Our politicians were perhaps already softened up by the fact that our former president, Mary Robinson, was a signatory on Yogyakarta, and we have 180 pharmaceutical companies manufacturing in Ireland. So a small island with 180 pharmaceutical companies. We keep on their right side. The Gender Recognition Act allows all individuals over the age of 18 to self-declare their own gender identity. They simply fill in a form, have it witnessed and send it off. There is no charge. The 16 to 18 year olds can apply through the courts with a medical declaration and parental consent. Most people have no idea either that the bill exists or that the process is so open. With our government so firmly captured by 2015, they have been able to move forward with legislation to embed gender ideology into the heart of our institutions. Our universities, National Women's Council, Amnesty Ireland, the trades unions, business representative groups, etc., have all been captured. We know we're no different from the rest of um, the world in this, but it, it, in a small country, it makes a difference. To give more context, among the aspirant politicians that the activist groups appear to have targeted early on was a young Green called Roderick O'Gorman. Since 2020, he has been a minister in the present coalition in charge of the Department of Children, Equality, Disability, Integration and Youth which covers just about everything, obviously, and makes him pivotal in driving gender ideology forwards. He is fully committed to gender ideology, and so is pushing to have the legal age for gender recognition reduced to below the age of 16, and for removing the current need for parental consent for 16 to 18 year olds. In 2018, the government appointed a review group to revisit the 2015 GRA, and this review called for a gender recognition system for any age with parental consent. This review group was chaired by the executive director of Belong To, a youth transgender activist group, with members including a man called Sarah Phillips, who was then on the board of Tenney and is now on the board of our National Women's Council. The Ombudsman for Children supports this position. This is legislation waiting to happen, but for the moment remains on the back burner. We do, however, ha now have several major pieces of legislation either going through or soon to be going through our Doyle, which will between them build a legal framework around gender ideology, which will make it very hard to combat. I'll go into that in a minute, but first want to run very quickly through the position more generally. Prisons. We have three transgender males in Limerick prison, which is our main women's prison holding 48 women at the moment in very overcrowded conditions. All three men are guilty of violent sexual assaults. Although they kept on a different landing to the women, apparently they shout abuse at the women below. They kept locked up for 23 hours a, a, a day. So that, that's another human rights um, violation right there. One man is a 21 year old called Barbie Kardashian, who is so extremely violent and frankly so weird looking that the general public have become aware of him, which is of course a good thing because nobody wants Barbie Kardashian in a woman's prison. Even the prison guards don't want him there. 
In sports, Gulf Island has from March this year adopted a policy of allowing males to participate in female competition under a number of very vague constraints. Our Ladies Gaelic Football Association is also allowing boys between 12 to 15 into girls teams with a medical statement and 16 year olds and older can play on ladies teams with a gender rec recognition certificate. They should have testosterone levels of no more than 10 nanomoles in the previous police in the previous 12 months, but there's no independent testing of that. So, you know, that can just go by the board. Gaelic football is a rough contact sport, um, very like Aussie rules, for example. A non-binary category has just been added to the Dublin Marathon and Swim Island is discussing how to make swimming more inclusive. Our health service called the HSE. Without going into detail, our health service works closely with various activist groups and as in other jurisdictions, is pushing forward gender neutral language, mixed sex wards, et cetera, et cetera. Our gender identity service for children under 18 feeds into the Tavistock, so is currently at a standstill. The adult clinic is becoming more outspoken in its opposition to automatic affirmation, but is largely ignored. And we have heard the beginnings of a whisper that the activist groups are going to target um, our TDs, that's members of parliament here, um, with a view to allowing the Webberleys, for example, to practice in Ireland. So that's just very much a whisper. Uh, working with various LGBT plus lobby groups, the health service has produced much of the material authorized for use in the new school curriculum. In education, a new social, personal and health education, that's SPHE curriculum, is being rolled out. The new junior cycle for ages 12 to 16 will start in September. The senior cycle next year and the primary cycle in 2025. Gender ideology is taught as fact from kinder level up, garden level onwards and is embedded in all subjects, even biology. Um, even the approach to mathematics and everything like that will be much more in line with, with um, the uh, critical theory approach. In line with Denton's, all teachers will be re-educated. Belong to is very active already in schools. It goes in and teaches them, and it teaches them stuff which isn't basically the law, but they believe it. So. Um, this is a real problem. A lot of teachers are very unhappy. Under the Irish constitution, parents are the primary education educators of their children. But this new approach makes it impossible for them to remove children from those classes they deem unsuitable. So back to the legislation lined up at the moment. Firstly, the criminal justice incitement to violence or hatred and hate offenses bill 2022 this is in effect an attack on freedom of speech article 40.6.1 of our constitution protects free speech already with the exception of speech which threatens public order and for this reason we have the 1989 prohibition of incitement to hatred act the new bill actually seeks to repeal this 1989 act without saying so, 
by placing limits around free speech to protect certain disadvantaged groups, such as travelers and immigrants, but crucially transgender people and non-gender conforming people. Thus the new bill makes gender a protected characteristic, but not sex. Gender is defined as <clears throat> the gender of a person or the gender which a person expresses as the person's preferred gender or with which the person identifies and includes transgender and a gender other than those of male and female. In other words, a completely nonsensical circular definition of gender. There is in addition, no definition of hatred, which appears to lie solely in the ear or eye of the beholder. The sources of hatred could include words, pictures, videos, anything really either shared or private. This talk, for example, could easily be deemed hate. This bill makes you guilty until proven innocent. Even the newspaper Saudi Express reported the bill as extreme, as did Donald Trump Jr. And Elon Musk as well, I think. If a person is accused of hatred, the police can decide whether or not to investigate, but the police are also captured. So, you know, that's probably a foregone conclusion. The police can then seize phones, laptops, etc., to decide whether to prosecute. And there's a maximum prison sentence of five years. This bill passed easily through the Doyle. Only four TDs turned up for the debate and is currently passing through the Senate. A few politicians have raised objections, but not many. Luckily, I think the bill will be completely unworkable in practice. We'll all put on our adult human t-shirt, female t-shirts and see how they cope with that. Just, just they won't know what to do. <clears throat> Then the next one, the Irish constitution sets out the rights of Irish citizens and rights contained therein can only be amended through a citizen's referendum. The government has announced that it will hold such a referendum in November this year on gender equality. Mind you, they've also just announced that they might hold a general election in November. So whether they intend to do the referendum very quietly alongside that or not, I really don't know. This referendum was recommended originally by the Citizens Assembly with input from Tenney, et cetera, and subsequently by a special joint eructus, that's our parliament, parliament committee on gender equality. Proposals for the constitutional amendments will be published at the end of June. The government statement is for too long, women and girls have carried a disproportionate share of responsibilities been discriminated against, objectified, and lived in fear of domestic violence. Which sounds great, you know, they're gonna tackle all of that. But actually it's closely followed by the plan to amend all sex specific language in the constitution to enshrine gender equality. Article 40.1 of our constitution states, all citizens shall, as human persons, be held equal before the law. This shall not be held to mean that the state shall not in its enactments have due regard to differences of capacity, physical and moral, and of social function. It is proposed that this should be amended to refer explicitly to gender equality and non-discrimination. 
when things are in our constitution, they become very difficult to move and obviously very embedded. Another article, 41.2, states, in particular, the state recognizes that by her life within the home, woman gives to the state a support without which the common good cannot be achieved. This article has long been contentious for feminists as it was widely interpreted as keeping women out of the workplace. But it's now being reassessed as recognizing the value of women who choose to stay at home. Again, the, women, the word woman will be replaced by non-gender specific terminology, whereas they could simply add the word man to this. All citizens equal before the law is surely sufficient unless the underlying intention is in fact to embed gender identity rather than sex into the constitution. They promised a public consultation for submissions on this and um, announced it out of the blue and then said we had 24 hours in which to get in touch with our TDs. And I say we, we scrambled like mad to try and get emails in, but 24 hours is not long. For a, for a proper consultation process. However, as this is a referendum vote, it cannot be passed behind closed doors. So it could well be the best opportunity we will have for challenging gender ideology in the full glare of sunlight. Then we have the Conversion Therapy Act. The Department of Children, Equality, Disability, Integration and Youth under the aforementioned Roderick O'Gorman requested a tender for conversion therapy research in November 2021, intended to help inform the policy rationale for and development of a cross-governmental approach to dealing with conversion practices in Ireland, including the development of legislation if required. Prior to setting this up, O'Gorman had already said that this practice is abusive and causes significant harms to people already in distress. Now, I should point out that there have been no recorded cases of conversion therapy in Ireland for at least 20 years, and we know that Roderick O'Gorman is perfectly aware of this. Nonetheless, the department appointed a research advisory group with representatives from advocacy groups, but no individuals or groups with other viewpoints. So completely bought before it began. The advocacy groups co-signed a public letter before the process had begun even, stating their firm commitment to a fully LGBT plus inclusive ban. The result was set to be a foregone conclusion. The research report, which was put together by um, our Trinity College School of Nursing and Midwifery and released in February of this year, again, does not define conversion therapy, nor does it provide any corroborating evidence, address clinical concerns, differentiate between sexual orientation and gender identity, provides no evidence of any sort, but this will be the um, recommendation behind this, um, the wording on this bill. A week ago, Roderick O'Gorman went to a conference organized by Tenney and LGBT Plus Ireland and immediately afterwards announced that he would be bringing a conversion therapy bill to the Doyle this June. 
This appears to be a solo flight, as when asked about this, people working in the department said they knew absolutely nothing about it. In a small country, you can get in touch with people like that and just ask them. So, uh, okay, we've got all of this coming at us. What are we doing about it? Although the few opinion polls carried out about gender ideology and the loss of women's rights show that most people are firmly opposed to the whole idea, organized opposition is still very scattered. Most people either don't know anything about it or just don't want to put their head above the parapet. Although there are small groups like Women's Space Ireland and Irish Women's Lobby, these have mainly have had an online presence. The highest profile and best organized group working in this area is the Countess under Licia de Bruyne. The various working groups under its aegis do invaluable work at policy level, contacting TDs and department heads and in coordinating letter writing campaigns. However, because of the complete blanket loss of mainstream media coverage, apart from a few journalists who do talk, speak out, these campaigns are largely invisible, and those women at grassroots level who would like to do something often feel totally isolated and fear to speak out. All is not lost as things are beginning to change. If any of you saw videos from Billboard Chris's recent visit to Dublin, you will have seen that ordinary people are much better informed than is apparent from the media. We know that many TDs are in fact very dubious about the direction in which legislation is headed, but they won't do anything until public opinion threatens their seats. Last November, the Women's Space to Speak conference was held in Dublin and 200 women from all over the country came together. For the first time, there was a sense of energy and community of purpose. We started to network. The small group I belong to, Wicklow Women for Women met randomly there in the bar and discovered we all lived near each other. We held our first local public meeting in January with Stella O'Malley, who has spoken on here, a speaker from the Countess and a lesbian talking of how gender ideology has affected her. From there, we started to build a grassroots online network. For the last few weeks, a small group has held a silenced protest about men in women's jails and have been really pleased with the degree of public support from passers-by. Politicians from some of the minor parties are engaging with the protesters in support of our message. So at a national level, we are feeling more hopeful that the tide is turning. We expect that when parents see the material on the SPHE curriculum starting in September, opposition will become much more visible. Perhaps the most important event to happen in Ireland though, and one which will have a global impact, was the first GenSpect conference at the end of April. Time to coincide with this year's EPATH, that's the European branch of WPATH. Um, it was held less than two kilometers away from the EPATH conference. GenSpect was founded in 2021 by the Irish psychotherapist Stella O'Malley, as an extension of her practice in treating both young people suffering with gender distress and their families. This led her to the treatment of detransitioners. GenSpect as an organization is now positioning itself as a therapeutic alternative to the treatment of the medicalization model of WPATH. Their therapeutic model 
example, is predicated on providing a healthy approach to sex and gender by helping young people with profound gender distress to journey through puberty. The best cure for puberty is puberty. The conference had about 250 attendees from across the world with expert speakers from a number of disciplines, from Michael Biggs, the sociologist who exposed the Tavistock, Helen Joyce, Maya Forstatter, Joseph Burgo, Lisa Littman, Stephanie Davies-Arai of Transgender Trend, Sue Evans of the Tavistock, as well as a number of detransitioners and parents. It was inspirational and filled with love. So that's how things stand at the moment. Our next battle is preparing for the gender equality referendum. And uh, that's how we, span, we, we stand nationally at the moment. How long have you been organising as Wicklow Women for Women? Um, uh, and how, how easy was it to sort of link up with other people? Well, other women? Uh, well, we, we met in, um, in November at the Women's Space to Speak conference. Uh, very randomly, I say we were sitting near each other in the bar and just started talking afterwards and then discovered we were um, going home the same way. So sat on the on the train going home, which is about a, a 30 minute journey or something like that, and discovered that we had a um, fairly activist turn of mind, I guess. Um, and, and we thought we've got to do something about this. We, we can't just moan among ourselves and, and things. We've got to do something. So we organized to get together, which we did. There are seven of us and some of them are on, I can see on, on, on here. So hello. And um, we decided the best thing to do was to have a public meeting. And none of us had the faintest notion what we were doing. And so this was basically coming into December and we had Christmas in the middle and we decided just to go for January. We would hire a room in the local hotel we would figure out some sort of um, speak, speakers and just go for it. So we tried our luck. We got in touch with Stella O'Malley and said, would she come and talk to us about um, problems with the curriculum? We decided to talk about the curriculum because we thought that that way, that would be something that local people might actually be interested in rather than some of the more obscure stuff about women's rights. And so Stella said she would come and then um, speaker from the Countess who knows all about the um, curriculum and all the various stuff that's been going on behind the board there. And um, we, we just waited to see if anybody would turn up. We, we didn't really give out much publicity because we were really quite frightened that people might shoot us or something like that because it is very woke around here. But one of our members got in touch with all the local politicians, all the local councillors, and much to our surprise, they did turn up. Loads of um, teachers turned up. And whereas we had thought, nobody will come, we'll just go to the bar and drink our misery away. But no, we had about 60 people, um, all of whom were very engaged and got very fired up. So it was... Um, the beginning of being able to take names and get interested at grassroots level because at grassroots level I think is where this will happen eventually in Ireland and so we have to get those people who feel isolated abandoned by everybody and get those into into some sort of talking so now I have quite a lot of names around the country I send emails um, we have had at least one zoom meeting we must have some more 
We're going to now hear from Barbara Bolt, who is an American living in Japan. She's an ESL, which I think is English as a foreign language, um, teacher in Kobe. Her activism has been limited to being a donor of WDI or, or other gender critical things and commenting on Twitter. She's going to cover the some of the LGBT groups in Tokyo and gender critical groups and pressure on the ruling party before the G7 summit and some of what's going on in the in the diet in the parliament. So thank you so much, Barbara. Um, and over to you. This is an update from Japan. I'm going to start first with LD, LGBT groups. So LGBT activism has flourished in Japan for the last 20 years. The first Pride Parade was in 1994, and the Pride House was established in 2010. The Pride House in Tokyo is a consortium of 35 organizations, 15 sponsor corporations, and 20 embassies. There's a building in Shinjuku Ward with a meeting space, a library, and a cafe. This is in uh, the middle of Tokyo. It's the Pride House, and uh, you can see it's on the second floor. And then on the right, you can see the inside, which is extensive. It's a long, it's a lot of space. Uh, there are, it's a meeting room, there's a cafe, and then a library. Looks very nice, and I, I would imagine it's extremely expensive. So some of those sponsor companies are probably helping them. Um, okay, so the organizations in their consortium the missions include running the Pride Parade, which is in April, a film festival, uh, serving those with HIV, activism with sports and the Olympics. Every time the Olympics comes around, there's a lot of H LGBT activism, training for companies regarding LGBT, helping LGTB families, <laughs> LGBT families, education about gender diversity and more. Last year, a second Pride Center was established in Osaka by Nichiido Diversity. Nichiido means rainbow, rainbow diversity. And this is again, an, organi an organization in the Tokyo Consortium. The founder and director of Rainbow Diversity is a lesbian named Maki Muraki. She's a self-made woman, very successful, a lawyer and consultant. And she set up her organization in 2013, Nichiido Diversity. The purpose of this organization was to help other gay people, lesbians, bisexuals on, um, in the workforce. In Japan, it's uh, pretty rough working. It's long hours. There's a lot of harassment sometimes uh, and bullying. So that was her objective was to stop that. And because of her, they have made a lot of policies to prevent that. So she has made progress. Um, I think transgender also goes along with that. Um, she says that the LGBT, the percentage in Japan is about 5%, which usually it's 10%. So I, I believe a lot of people have not come out yet. Because, um, let me see. However, however, she uses cis, she uses pronouns. Uh, also, I saw a TED talk that she did. And it's obvious she, she doesn't know about sports science. She thinks that men and women can compete together and it's perfectly fair. As the G7 was approaching, I opened up the newspaper, the Japanese newspaper we have, and here is a big picture with Ms. Meraki at the 
and a French embassy official at the Pride Center in Osaka. Each was holding a transgender flag. It became apparent to me that the press is also woke. I admire some things about Ms. Meraki, but like those in the West, she refuses to see a big part of the picture. Pride Center Osaka is run by Queer Women's Research Center. And not only that, it has a gender neutral bathroom. The two Pride Centers have strong ties with foreign diplomats. So the next thing is the gender critical group, which is called Save Women's Space Japan. It's a women's symbol with a bunch of leaves around it. And I wondered about the significance of those leaves. And I contacted them, but they said there was nothing in particular about the leaves. So, but it is a beautiful logo. And their purpose is to have, they have regular meetings with politicians, Zoom presentations and press conferences. Their objective is to point out the harm of gender self-identity to politicians regarding the Japanese public and to support women's spaces and rights. On May 1st, Save Women's Spaces had a press conference at Japan National Press Club. One of the speakers, Natsuko Mori, told of the trouble the lesbian community has faced from males who identify as lesbians. Another speaker, well, they had a press conference and it was a very long table. They had about seven speakers. And Michiko Orita was this, the other one, this other speaker. She, was, she is from Tokyo's Rape Crisis Center, which is a consultation center. And she said that her center had been disqualified for a government grant from the Minato City Center for Gender Equality. The director of the center was displeased that she had used the terms trans women instead of woman, women in the Rape Center's newsletter. We can now see how things are set up here to, to favor trans activists. It seems that the government gives funds to Minato City Center for gender equality to be dispersed to organizations in the community, the LGBT community in Minato Ward, which is a section of Tokyo. But only those that support trans ideology need apply. The women at the rape center are left out. Save Women's Spaces is fortunate to work with a lawyer, Taro Takimoto, who has truly, truly has Japanese women's interests at heart. He's fighting to defeat the LGBT bill, and his office is also used by Save Women's Spaces. Okay, the next thing is the Japanese government. Very sim simple explanation. The Japanese government is made up of one big party, which is usually the ruling party, and the other small parties or opposition parties. The big party is called the Liberal Democratic Party, but it is anything but liberal. They are very conservative. They are against LGBT rights, including same-sex marriage and gender self-ID. The other parties are for same-sex marriage and gender self-ID. In most places in Japan, LGBTQ plus is a package. It's either all or nothing, except that there's one thing that's different in Japan. A transgender person, transgender person must go through therapy and operations to render themselves sterile before they can change their registration and present as the opposite sex. This is this the ruling party approves of. With this law in place, 
the number of people in Japan who are recognized as the opposite sex was around 10,000 as of 2020. With the sterilization law, the possibility of trans ID females giving birth is avoided. And the prospect of parents trying to be named as the opposite sex parent is also prevented. That doesn't take away the fact that there is a lot of suffering because of these mandatory surgeries. Especially there are a lot of female to male transgender people and those, those females have to have a hysterectomy. It's pretty rough. Uh, the rule referred to as GID, Gender Identity Disorder and Special Cases Act has been enforced for 20 years. It shows that in addition to basic prejudice toward LGBT people, the ruling party has known the dangers of self-ID for a long time. So that was the background. And now the G7 summit. With the upcoming G7 summit, there was considerable activism to get the LGBT bill passed. This bill was made two years ago when the Olympics happened and it's extreme. It has gender self-ID. It has teaching in the schools. But the, the, the ruling party has never liked it. The three, so three leading LGBT groups, Marriage for All Japan, the Japan Alliance for LGBT Legislation and Human Rights Watch formed a focus group before the G7 summit called Pride 7. On March 30th, Pride 7 held their own summit in Tokyo, a roundtable with representatives from government and embassies attended. An effort was made to gain acceptance for the LGBT bill. One guest speaker from the ruling party said that the diet was working hard for the enactment of the bill. Trans activists in Japan have also had some help from abroad. More than anyone, the American ambassador to Japan, Rahm Emanuel, has been pushing for passage of the bill. He had the six other ambassadors from the G7 to sign a joint private letter to the Japanese prime minister, citing the lack of LGBT rights. He spent a lot of time at events such as Pride Parade and Pride 7 Summit with Prime Minister Kishida's aide, who is thoroughly behind the bill. On Twitter, he had this to say, the equality countdown begins now. It's time for a new era where members of the LGBTQI plus feel at home in Japan and America. And we support universal human rights for all. Meanwhile, when this is going on, the ruling party was revising the LGBT bill where it said, end discrimination, they changed it to end unjust discrimination. And gender self-ID was changed to back to the, the way they have it, the GID requiring surgeries. And finally, the clause involving LGBT education in schools was removed. They felt that if the bill without revision was passed, there would be problems with men accessing women's restrooms and public baths. So this is one thing where Japan is different, the public baths. Like in Tokyo, there's a lot of, uh, they're called osento, like mom and pop um, small bathhouses. Um, and so they're afraid that men will, will go into them. One prominent conservative politician said, 
that it's wrong to protect a minority at the expense of the majority. And I think he meant women by that. They seem to have an idea of what would happen if they passed full LGBT rights. So then the summit is coming up as of May 16, three days before the G7. The ruling party and the second largest party, Komeito, agreed on a revised LGBT bill. And this was on the revised bill. And this was presented to the Diet on May 18. As the smaller parties were unhappy with this bill, now revised, they refused to deliberate and vote on it. So in the end, the bill was presented and then shelved. The ruling party felt satisfied that they had done just enough to appease the other countries in the G7. But of course, the LGBT community and allies were not happy with this outcome. On the other hand, the ruling party had many emails and phone calls from angry constituents decrying the bill. Because of Japan's conservative nature, gender ID may not take root here, even with all the outside pressure. So what did Rahm Emanuel have to say about the outcome of the LGBT bill? After his overly optimistic messages on Twitter, he had this to say, today's introduction of an LGBTQI plus awareness bill is a significant step in a long journey for equity for all. I thank the Japanese public for supporting equality and seeking change. It's unclear to me what he's happy about as the bill was not deliberated, voted on or passed. Perhaps he's just being strategic as the ambassador waiting for his next chance. This time, women in Japan have been spared gender self ID. On the other hand, gays and lesbians and bisexuals have been denied same-sex marriage. The Diet will continue to discuss the bill until the end of the session, which is June 21st. After the G7, one of the small parties, the Democratic Party for the People, considered changing the bill to protect cisgender people. They're getting there. Probably nothing will come of this, but it shows that lawmakers are beginning to wake up to the harms of gender self-ID. This and the conservative nature of Japanese lawmakers means that the LGBT bill will remain on the shelf for a long time to come. Okay, I have some updates from today, today. I have a source in Tokyo that sent me some updates. On June 16, the Supreme Court of Japan will hand down a judgment as to whether a trans-identified male can use the women's toilets in the government building where he's employed. The previous judgments have been split. This is fantastic. This woman has come out of nowhere. Suddenly she was at the train stations handing out leaflets and she has a megaphone and she's making speeches. Her name is Moe Fukada and her mission is to protect women's toilets. She's organizing an all women's conference and there's an ad right here is at the bottom. That's the ad for the conference. On June 3rd, because of her and others, there are many concerns about the LGBT bill in various publications. So people are waking up here. Uh, I would like to thank a woman in Tokyo for helping me do this. It really, uh, her effort really helped me. And she's an awesome activist who can assemble information at the speed of light. 
Okay, that's all. <laughs>